I know five minutes isn't enough. I understand that. Make sure my microphone's on. Are we good? But it is what we have. I want to spend a moment in prayer, and then we're going to um, look to the Word of God. Our Father, our thoughts this morning are being enlivened by the glorious truths of Scripture. And already with Chad and Mark opening your word, we're, we're thrilled by the reality of the cross and thrilled by the, the doctrines of grace. We are sobered to know that we have a responsibility to care for the gospel, to guard it, to be clear, to be accurate, to be precise. We pray that that would continue this day and as now we look to dangers in the church, dangers in certain aberrant forms of Christianity. I pray that we are warned and we are sobered. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and in this session I'm going to deal with the question, what are the dangers of Christian sentimentalism? What are the dangers of Christian sentimentalism? Our conference today is focused on a biblical and historical critique, and the historical part is going to be a a major part of this message. And and really what I'm going to give you this morning is more of a lecture on recent church history and practical ecclesiology. This afternoon I will preach a sermon. I just want to walk through some information for you this morning. Now, before I get into the heart of what I'd like to share, I I think it's helpful to cover a couple of introductory thoughts. First introductory thought, it's helpful as a launching point to consider Job chapter 1. We're all familiar with the story of Job. In God's sovereign plan, he allowed Satan to take Job's family and his wealth. And what was Job's response? Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. Now, I'm pointing this out because the text is very clear. Job worshipped. But his worship was devoid of what so many of us think of when we think of worship. It was devoid of excited emotions. It was devoid of jumping around in ecstasy. It it was devoid of the seeking of an affective or a touching or a feelings-based experience. Job worshipped by declaring truth about God and truth about himself. That Job owns nothing and God owns everything that God is utterly sovereign. Second introductory thought. Why this particular topic at this conference, critiquing the influencers' materials? Well, it's our position that the influencers actually plays right into a sentimentalist view of Christianity. I'm going to focus primarily on the flagship resource, the journey to the inner chamber The journey to the inner chamber plays into the sentimentalist view of Christianity. The whole story pushes the reader toward what we've already heard, the feast in the inner chamber. And and I'll say this, and I say this truly in love to any 
in the influencers who is pushing back hard against what we're saying today, if you really have achieved the feast of the inner chamber, then don't worry about it. The main character prays, quote, Savior, I ask you to show me the feast in the inner chamber so that I can partake of it. It's some sort of strange mixture of a man presenting himself as a Christian and yet without this higher knowledge that will give him the secret to, quote, become the man I want you to be, unquote. But Ephesians 1.3 says that every believer has been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Second Peter 1.3 says that God has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There are no lower level Christians and higher level Christians. This is, the influencers is like high school, JV and varsity. God whispers on page four of the journey to the inner chamber. I want to make you a new man. Or I want to make you a new man. I, I, I wanted to take time to talk about the theology of God whispering And I understand the still, small voice that we hear about with Elijah and so forth. The theology of God whispering uh, is really tenuous. More of the time that God is said to speak, he tends to speak really, really loudly. It's a separate topic. But he whispers, I want to make you a new man. What's so disturbing about this is that being made a new man, biblically, is not a post-salvation experience. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in fact, the book pictures, quote, mankind is starving for a relationship with his creator. That's pure sentimentalist garbage. It's fiction. That's completely contrary to Scripture. Mankind starving for a relationship with his creator. Genesis 6.5 pictures mankind as utterly wicked and against God. Psalm 2 pictures mankind as scheming against God. Romans 3.11 says there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Footnote. No one is starving for a relationship with their creator. They hate their creator. The book states on page 24. The maturity I speak of requires real spiritual food. This is not the place to stop if he wants to mature and become spiritually healthy. What does this mean? Words matter and meanings matter. By logical deduction, the newer believer in Christ who has not discovered all these secrets, apparently only available through the influencers, does not have access to, quote, real spiritual food and is spiritually unhealthy. That every new believer in Christ is spiritually unhealthy. Similarly, verse 29, or page 29, rather, Quote, I began to understand that this progression was being shown to me so that I could understand what was missing in my own life and what was keeping me from the feast in the inner chamber. I, I want, I, I'm going to sidestep this here. The other guys went way long. I'm going to do it too, so why not? <laughs> what idiocy says you have now come to faith in Jesus Christ? The first thing I want to tell you is that you're missing so many things. That is unbiblical and it's illogical and it's idiotic. What is this? In the second century, they had a name for it. It was called Gnosticism. 
higher knowledge, mysticism, of seeking a higher knowledge and a higher experience, defining the Christian life as seeking this secret place. It's a reference to secret knowledge. And in fact, the view of Scripture itself is presented as having hidden secret knowledge that you have to work through to suddenly discover it. Quote, God's word contains his love letters to his children. These love letters and his instructions are often hidden from plain view. And it requires a sincere, dedicated effort to find these truths. In other words, I can only understand God's word from an effort from my own mind, my own soul. We just read in 1 Corinthians 2 that it's actually the opposite. It's the Spirit of God that opens these truths. Quote, as a new baby in Christ matures, he needs to be moved to a deeper understanding of God's truths that are hidden in the Bible. Just a side note, the Bible never calls itself a love letter. I don't know in the book of Judges how you define a man hacking a woman into 12 pieces as a love letter. I bring that up because that is a sentimentalist view of the Bible. That it's nothing more than a really glorified devotional guide that I pick little verses out of to give me a feeling, give me an emotion, give me a sentiment. And who cares about the context? Who cares about what it actually means? What does it mean to me is all that matters. All this adds up to a view of being a Christian that seeks higher exclusive knowledge, and listen carefully, that seeks an experience with God as defined as the feast of the inner chamber. And this fits right into Christian sentimentalism. The main thrust of what I want to cover this morning is a historical and ecclesiological, ecclesiological review, rather, to, I want to guide your thinking. And I actually hope if you're on the line, if you're, if you're wondering what do I do with these things, get some of the influencers' materials and read them. And if you're sucked into that, then I would question your salvation, to be quite honest with you. But I want you to have a framework to evaluate these materials. And I want to do this in five parts. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to be lecturing some, and there's no way around this. Sometimes you just have to eat your vegetables, and that's what we're doing right now. I'm going to do this in five parts. I'm going to give you a partial history of sentimentalism. And I'll, I'll repeat all of this. I'm going to give you definitions of sentimentalism. I'm going to give you the sentimentalist view of experience and results. I'm going to give you factors for avoiding sentimentalism. And then just for fun, I'd like to give you a notable parallel from recent history, from church history. So this is the historical review part. First of all, let's do a partial history of sentimentalism. As we saw with Job... One of the major functions of worship is to acknowledge that God alone is sovereign. That He alone is in control of all events. That, that is at the core of worship. That, and that He alone has the inherent right as the creator of all things. This is Job worshiping God when God gives and Job worshiping God when God takes away. This is God-centered worship and it is the very antithesis of the man-centered worship that often characterizes evangelicalism. Well, what happened? What got so many embracing sentimentalism, which I will define further later on? A major component to this drift from God-centered worship is that evangelicalism in general has come to believe that emotion and sentiment is the key component to a relationship with God. That I feel close to God without actually being able to define what feeling close means except in emotional terms. 
Now, none of us speaking today and none who helped craft the Bakersfield statement deny that God made us as emotional beings. We are emotional beings. But this goes too far when outward attempts to create emotion are then equated with an encounter with God. Dr. Todd, Todd Brenneman, professor of church history, wrote a book a few years ago called The Homespun Gospel, The Triumph of Sentimentality in, in Contemporary American Evangelicalism. And in his book, he gives an analysis of the balanced thinking of the early American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards. And the reason this was an issue for Edwards was that uh, Edwards witnessed the tremendous revival happening in the American colonies in the mid-1700s. It was accomplished and brought about by the preached word of God, but it was also accompanied by tremendous shows of emotion. But here is his balance. Now, I'm going to read you a long quote, and I'll give you the, the short version of it. Edwards wrote, The emotionality present in the revivals affirmed the authenticity of revivalism while also, here's his balance, cautioning individuals not to equate the presence of the emotions with the validity of religious experience. Simply because one was emotional did not mean one was godly. And when Edwards says godly, he means saved in Christ. Instead, true or godly emotions arose from divine operations on the heart and had their fruit in Christian practice. In other words, the emotions of the converted sinner proved their validity by the subsequent obedient life of that sinner, that there was verifiable change. But contrary to that balanced understanding that emotion may be a valid and understandable response to conversion and to the gospel, modern evangelicalism often sees emotion Listen carefully, not as the response to coming to Christ, but as the means to arrive at Christ. That if I can generate emotion in someone, that means they've encountered God. They've experienced the gospel. And the major way that this emotionalism is tapped into is with a popular view of God, which itself is purely sentimental. It's a view of God that says that God is a loving father who is desperate for a relationship with his children. That he, he has a yearning, he has a longing that can only be fulfilled by relationships with creatures. This leaves very little room for the wrath of God. It leaves little room for justice. It leaves little room for righteousness. And in whatever context, in whatever version of that philosophy, whenever it's promoted, the listener and the participant is meant to feel something. And that's taken as an encounter with God. As a matter of fact, that idea is so prevalent that I would be willing to bet a nickel that many of you right now are saying to yourselves, but that's Christianity. I felt the Lord's presence and therefore I'm in Christ. Is it? Is that Christianity? Beginning as far back as the mid-1700s, overlapping the genuine salvation experiences of thousands in the American colonies during the Second Great Awakening, a Wesleyan second blessing experience began to be taught. This was a post-conversion dramatic experience which supposedly provided entire perfection and sinlessness from that time forward. John Wesley's successor, John Fletcher, took Acts 11.16, which speaks of being baptized with the Holy Spirit and in theologically accurate terms, speaks of the moment of salvation, the inclusion of the person in the church, the people of God, but Fletcher taught that this event was subsequent to, it was sometime after salvation and was a higher Christian experience and he labeled it the baptism in the Holy Spirit. 
In American Methodism in the 19th century, this notion of an emotional experience was necessary for true spirituality and it took root. It became normal. That if you said, I'm a Christian, and you didn't cry, then something was wrong. In the mid to late 19th century in America, revival meetings began using techniques to emotionally break people down, to create a sense of having encountered the divine. Long meetings, night after night, singing that could last for hours, invitations by evangelists with emotion and intense repetition. And by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, an encounter with God was now normally considered to be an extremely emotional event. With emotion, listen carefully, both as the means to encounter God and the result of encountering God. So by the start of the 20th century, the church of Jesus Christ was ripe, ripened for a massive misdirection. What could possibly outdo the emotional revival meetings? The dramatic conversions that seemed to, at least on the surface, to be life-changing despite a man-centered gospel being preached. Charles Parham had a Bible training school in Topeka, Kansas. He was a former Methodist pastor who taught that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was also bringing back first century miracles. He taught that the only evidence of baptism of the Holy Spirit was that of speaking in tongues. And so his students began praying for this baptism. And finally, on January 1st, 1901, Agnes Osmond apparently became the first modern person to speak in tongues, which some identified as Chinese. Later, it was proven to be no language at all. It's just gibberish. I'm not here to talk about that issue, but just to show you the progression toward the influencers. One man that was deeply affected by Parham was a man by the name of William Seymour. Seymour became the pastor of a Nazarene church in Los Angeles, and he preached that anyone who does not speak in tongues is not baptized in the Holy Spirit, that they're, they're the lower level. They're the junior varsity Christians. You have to speak in tongues. You have to have experiences to be the varsity. The church was upset, and they padlocked the door to keep him out. I guess that's one way to deal with a pastor that's wayward. A couple of months later, though, he became pastor of a holiness church on Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. And over the next three and a half years, tens of thousands of people claimed to have received the gift of tongues in, in highly emotionally charged worship services. And then taking this experience back to their churches all over the nation the emotionalism which became normal in the 19th century was now whipped into a frenzy by the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s. And over the next decades, the Pentecostal church, the Assemblies of God, the International Church of the Four Square Gospel dominated the Christian experience until about 1960. Then from 1960 to 1979 or so, the charismatic renewal happened in what some call the second wave of the charismatic movement. In November of 1959... Dennis Bennett, who was the pastor of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, he began to pray in tongues. And this was very noticeable to his people because he was one who had criticized Pentecostalism. And almost immediately, the, the backwoods, kind of hick, redneck, odd Pentecostal movement suddenly took on an air of respectability because Episcopalians and Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Presbyterians began coming to St. Mark's in Van Nuys, supposedly being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues, then taking that practice with them back to home churches all over the country. In 1980, the third wave of the charismatic movement, it brought a new flavor to this heresy. 
churches and church members who were not charismatic, were not Pentecostal, who grew up in First Baptist Church down the street, were suddenly being thrilled by and enamored by the movement because people were coming from Azusa Street saying, I've discovered something no one here knows. Now, these were churches that didn't want to radically change. Look, we've been First Baptist Church since 1804, and we're not changing now for this. But they did want to feel included. They could look at the Assemblies of God church down the street and see how excited they were and how many people were filling the parking lot. And here we are with six of us and Granny Smith on her walker coming in, and you feel like, man, they've got something we don't have. But they didn't want to change tradition. So the third wave folks wanted a broader approach that didn't want to say, I'm Pentecostal or I'm charismatic, but I want to be part of this thing that's happening. Things like the vineyard movement, which taught having the whole church speak in tongues all at once, that miracles, visions, healings, prophecies, and tongues are part of the gospel, necessary for for evangelism. They included bizarre behaviors such as as so-called holy laughter and barking like dogs and falling on the ground, uh, apparently paralyzed, that this was somehow part of the gospel. The third wave of the charismatic movement is often called the signs and wonders movement, that the gospel is rational, but it exceeds the rational and goes into the mystical. By the 1990s, the Pentecostal style of worship had infiltrated many mainstream evangelical churches. And if I could be as loving and kind, many of you in other churches from here, you may not even realize that the style of worship you're engaged in is actually borrowed from these movements. It just hasn't been gotten out yet. It became very difficult to distinguish a Pentecostal church from any other church. No longer was there a gravity and a sobriety to worship, but a focus on personal ecstasy. And somewhere along the line, a switch flipped. That worship is now no longer about giving glory to God. Worship is about me feeling something. Now, combine that, if you know a little of recent church history, what happens right at the beginning of the 1990s? The seeker-sensitive movement explodes on the scene at exactly the same time. This is a movement now that isn't teaching that as a Christian you should feel something to encounter God. Now the seeker-sensitive movement teaches that unbelievers may encounter God. By coming to a so-called worship service that's filled with smoke and mirrors and lights and, and, and all kinds of goodies that the unbeliever may feel something tangible in a worship service. And the idea is, behind the seeker-sensitive philosophy, is that you start with this emotion-based attraction and you move them slowly toward the real gospel. The problem is you never get there. Why? Because it works too well to get lots of people in the doors and create millions of dollars for these churches. So you never get to the gospel. Now we see tangible, visible expressions of this emotional, emotionalism being easily attained. You didn't have to forsake your Baptist roots, so to speak. You didn't have to become Pentecostal. You could stay in your, your Baptist church, and as long as you added some lights, a good lead guitarist, and, and a pastor that dressed way cooler than I ever have, then things are okay. And now the typical worship service seeks to excite the emotion which is taken as an encounter with God. And if you don't believe that this is a conditioned response, I'm going to test you right now. And you be honest in your own heart. How many people, don't raise your hand, this is a theoretical question for your own heart, because if you don't raise your hand, I'm going to look like an idiot. So 
How many of you have ever been in a worship service when the piano starts or the guitar starts, somebody's still checking their phone for texts and their hands go up in the air because the music started. That's a conditioned response based in a hundred years of bad worship theology. Now, the cultivated atmosphere of joyful fear of God is replaced by a party-like atmosphere of ecstasy and and feeling, followed by a man-centered message to let you know how okay you are. And, And now the First Baptist Church in town is no longer distinguishable from the exciting Assembly of God church down the street. And any church, heaven forbid, that continued singing hymns And preaching the Bible was viewed as old-fashioned, or actually they were viewed as, you ready for this, non-spirit-filled. You can drive by churches in our town that says, spirit-filled church. You know what got left behind in this chaos, in this mess? What got left behind was truth. And by now, the charismatic Christian experience was all but devoid of the gospel The goal was not to receive Christ. The goal was to receive the Holy Spirit and get the miracles, the tongues, the health, and the wealth. A sinner was something defined as someone who didn't have enough faith to receive all those things. You have the two levels again. And so that now at at so many formerly faithful churches, the average guest is greeted by some version of a show some version of trying to create hype and emotion and an I'm okay, you're okay message instead of gathering together to humbly acknowledge that God is holy and I am not. And now American evangelicalism has in so many corners embraced this as normal Christianity. Church websites promise great things, things like a worship experience, powerful worship, spirit-filled worship, Victorious worship. What is spirit-filled worship? That's code name for my lead guitarist is better than your lead guitarist. In other words, worship is about what I feel and how I experience God or some emotion that I think is good. And because so many now believe that this is normal and because it doesn't last and it doesn't work, And because you can go to a church for 5 and 10 and 15 years where the smoke and the mirrors and the light show and and, and the gold glitter falling from the ceiling, whatever you want, people look in the mirror and they go, this just isn't working. I need something more. It's like a drug addict that just can't get enough, can't get enough. Worship is now about what I feel. And because sentimentalism becomes the norm, even in the churches that are so devoid of the gospel, so devoid of truth, and yet trying to generate emotion and it doesn't work, the people are looking around for something else. In steps the influencers. We can give you more. It took 300 years of development, but it's here. And churches that go against this are the exception. The second point I'd like to make, definitions of sentimentalism. A good definition of sentimentalism, and I'll I'll repeat this, is the classifying of the Christian life primarily in terms of emotion and experience 
as markers of authenticity. I'll repeat that. The classifying of the Christian life primarily in terms of emotion and experience as markers of authenticity. And I think you can fill in the blanks there. This has major ramifications for multiple areas of Christian faith. As I've already mentioned, it has ramifications in the theology of worship. Sentimentalism sees worship as an experience I have rather than the right response of the redeemed to the person and the work of God. It has ramifications for theology proper, the study of God. In, in sentimentalism, God is presented in very limited terms. Concepts like justice and wrath and eternality, they're, they're minimized while love is maximized. That God is limited by your desires. God is limited by your willingness. God is limited by how much you're able to trust Him on your own in your own power. It has ramifications for spiritual discernment. Sentimentalism clouds discernment because how I feel about something now becomes part of the equation instead of seeking truth with regard, without regard to what I feel or even what I've experienced. And, and let me tell you something. We have, uh, the three speakers, uh, as well as uh, others who have been involved with this, we have experienced some anger. We have experienced some vitriol because there's an emotional response. Literally, they put out a video decrying what we're doing today before we did it. That's pure emotion. That's not rational. By the way, it's one of the benefits of actual persecution, persecution of the church. Because persecution devastates sentimentalism. Sentimentalism in Christianity can't stand under real persecution because the emotion of faith has evaporated. See also Job. The truth has always divided the true from the false. The sermons and admonitions and rebukes of Jesus were continually divisive. He makes sharp distinctions between things like light and darkness, truth and error, reality and delusion, foolishness and wisdom, godliness and ungodliness, purity and perversion, flesh from spirit, life from death, heaven from hell, grace from wrath. But sentimentalism blurs all those distinctions and tries to ease you into the kingdom. There are two kingdoms, darkness and light. There's not a gray kingdom that you're trying to work towards something. If you create an atmosphere of euphoria where everything is positive, everything is inoffensive, it gives a person a false sense of spirituality because they feel good about God. They feel good about life, about themselves. This is why sentimental versions of Christianity, listen carefully because I'm about to offend some of you. Christianity is now defined primarily in terms of emotion and experience as markers of authenticity. Listen, sentimental versions of Christianity make it possible for someone to fully believe they are saved when they are not. And you say, oh, that's terrible. Actually, I'm just quoting Jesus. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name, did we not prophesy? In your name, cast out demons. In your name, do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen carefully. The Bible warns that Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11. What was the weapon that Satan used in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve? He used emotional idealism, sentimentality, that she could go to a higher plane. She could be varsity. She could go to the feast of the inner chamber. Genesis 3, 4. 
And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die for God, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be what? Opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan appealed to sentimentality. The feeling that would come from some higher knowledge, from some secret place, from some inner chamber. And once sentimentalism gets a foothold, it begins to redefine God, redefine Christ, redefine salvation, and slowly replaces the foundations of the church that's built on the apostles and the prophets. It's the third part. The sentimentalist view of experience and results. The sentimentalist view of experience and results. I've had the opportunity in recent weeks to interact with both uh, those who were formerly part of the influencers and some currently involved. And one theme rose to the top consistently. You can't argue with results. You can't argue with results, with changed lives. And admittedly, that's a powerful argument at first. This argument comes from two directions. I'm going to hit both of them. First direction Well, many have come to saving faith in Christ through the influencers. You can't deny that. Well, several things. First of all, someone's actual salvation status is not knowable. Someone saying, I'm a Christian, doesn't make it so. Somebody giving a testimony and shedding a tear and getting a Kleenex from the guy next to him doesn't mean he's saved. It just means he had an emotional experience. Second, we deny that any group or any person can be the cause of salvation. God and God alone is the efficient cause of salvation. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Acts 13, 48 tells of the salvation of many Gentiles that as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now listen, and this is an important point to get because this is an argument we've heard back. The place the location or the organization or the group in which a person comes to faith in Christ does not inherently legitimize that place, that organization, that group. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 3, and it is the Spirit who moves when the Spirit decides, John 3. Where you are in proximity, what's happening, being said around you is not the point. There's a second direction that this argument comes from about you can't argue with results. Lives are being changed. Lives are being changed. And I don't deny that. None of us are denying that the influencers have changed lives. We don't deny that. Marriages are made better. Parenting is better. Relationships at work are better. All kinds of things are better. We don't deny that. Here's the question, though. Does that mean they're accurately representing the genuine gospel of Christ? Let me read you several testimonies and you be the judge. One woman who is the victim of sexual abuse as a child writes this testimony. There wasn't just one moment of healing. It was a process of peace, understanding, and answers that came as I studied my scriptures, prayed daily, and became more acquainted with Jesus Christ. As I studied the Savior's life, I felt increasing love for him. The Spirit testified truths to me, including my own worth as a daughter of God. As I submitted my heart to the Lord, obeyed His commandments, and sought His will, I was was filled with comfort and peace. As I came to know Him, I began to know myself. Eventually, my past didn't hurt anymore. The burden was removed. The Savior had healed me. That's a changed life. Let me read you another testimony. 
One couple wrote of their new joy in their marriage. They wrote that they have, quote, found great joy in building a Christ-centered home, studying and living the gospel together, serving in the church, inviting others to come unto Christ. As we work together to build the kingdom of God, we grow closer, our love deepens, and life is more fulfilling. Changed life, changed marriage. Listen to this woman who wrote, I was taught of my other need for a redeemer. I turned immediately to the Savior, Jesus Christ, in my thoughts and felt my anguish melt away and a great hope spring up in my heart. He was my only hope and I longed to cling only to Him. It was clear to me that a self-absorbed natural woman is an enemy to God and to people in her sphere of influence. In the temple that day, I learned it was only through the atonement of Christ that my sinful nature could change and that I would be enabled to do good. I felt his love keenly and I would teach and I knew he would teach me by the Spirit and change me if I gave my heart to him, holding back nothing. Changed life. These are certainly changed lives. Now, I gave you one clue just to see what I was doing because let me ask you a question. You cannot argue with results, right? Well, then what are you going to do with the fact that those testimonies are from Mormons? What are you going to do with that? I let the word temple slip just so you'd maybe get a hint. They are members of a cult which denies the deity of Jesus Christ and biblical salvation. The point is, you do not judge truth by experience. You judge your experience by the truth. And if it doesn't match up, your experience was wrong. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, Church of Scientology, all these claim results. So what do you do? This is my fourth part, factors for avoiding sentimentalism. Returning once again to um, Todd Brenneman's book, Homespun Gospel, his basic argument is that over the past decades, the church has been fooled and ripened to be fooled by high-profile preachers and authors that have fooled much of the evangelical church into believing a less-than-biblical God, one that exists primarily for me and described in parameters that gives me warm feelings. He chronicles several book crazes that have beset the church over the past couple of decades, The Purpose-Driven Life by Rick Warren, Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen, all the books by Max Lucado, the Prayer of Jabez by Bruce Wilkerson. Wilkinson. Uh, we could add Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. And now we're adding The Journey to the Inner Chamber as well. In total, these books have sold tens of millions of copies and in their day they were considered the next big thing in the church. But Brenneman's thesis is that What is deceptive about sentimentalism is that the average everyday believer in the church who's looking for encouragement, who's looking for help in their walk with Christ, is taken in by the fact that the book or the sermon made them feel good. And that becomes the measure of truth. Listen carefully. If spiritual deception were not a major issue, then the Bible wouldn't crescendo at the end on this topic. The warnings in the New Testament are seemingly endless to beware of false teaching, to beware of the slippery slope of human opinion and myths and philosophical systems disguised as spiritual truth. So let me give you five factors for avoiding sentimentalism. The first one, expect uninspired sources to be uninspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This highlights the doctrine of inspiration, that the scriptures are wholly perfect and inerrant and therefore authoritative. All other sources are 
inherently uninspired. So this shouldn't surprise us. Sermons are uninspired in that the capacity for error is continually present. So our, our goal is to stick as closely as we can to sound Bible study methods and, and make certain a robust examination of Scripture is our guide, our constant companion. The books are uninspired in that they're basically written sermons if they're any good. And the same standard applies to them. Preaching, as already has been mentioned, is mandated in Scripture all over the place. But preach what? 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the Word. But a sermon or, or a book is still delivered by a flawed human recipient. We understand that. So when an uninspired source doesn't stand the scrutiny of further comparison to Scripture, that should not be a surprise. That's why we're to learn and know our theology because it provides training wheels. It provides boundaries for us to recognize when an uninspired source go out, goes out of bounds. Second way to avoid sentimentalism. Uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. Uninspired sources have varying degrees of usefulness. When Paul was in prison in Rome the second time, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.13 and he asked him to bring some things. He said, bring me my books, my scrolls. Paul quotes an uninspired source in Titus 1.12. Now, that uninspired quote now becomes part of the inspired text of Scripture. Jude does the same thing in Jude 14. If we didn't believe in uninspired sources as being useful, we wouldn't have a bookstore. Uh, Seminaries wouldn't make us read thousands and thousands of pages of books. But there are varying degrees of usefulness based on what? Based primarily on... I'm asking this question, to what degree does this book accurately explain Scripture? That's it. Third, remember that uninspired sources become a form of idolatry. Uninspired sources can become a form of idolatry. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. It is possible to make an idol of an uninspired source of information. And you know how that, you know, you know how you know that's happened? when an uninspired source becomes an idol to you because your ire is raised, your anger is raised when someone challenges that source. And instead of evaluating the content and searching the scriptures, there's an emotional defensiveness. Why can an uninspired source become a source of idolatry? The fourth factor to avoid sentimentalism, sentiment is not study. Sentiment is not study, or or use a more technical word, sentiment is not a hermeneutic. John said in 3 John 4 that he rejoices to find the members of the church walking in the truth and he warns them of deceivers. He encourages them to abide in the teaching of Christ. So discernment means that emotion and sentiment are not a hermeneutic. It's not a helpful means of discerning truth. Sentiment is not study. How you feel about a text of the Bible, what emotional impressions you got, or as the influencers write in their materials, what revelation you received is not the same as the diligent study of God's Word in which the words matter, grammar matters, language matters, historical situation matters, authorial intent matters, context matters. There's a fifth factor for avoiding sentimentality. Responsible church leadership examines what has become popular. Responsible church leadership examines what has become popular. You know, every once in a while I go on Amazon and I just want to find out what Christian book is just flying off the presses right now. And at first it starts off as sort of an 
an objective, unemotional interest. Fast forward 12 months and I'm preaching a sermon about it. Because it's so popular, almost inevitably it's going to be filled with error. Why? Titus 1 tells us why, verses 10 and 11. There are many who are insubordinate or rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced. It is the responsibility of church leadership to be careful and thoughtful and studied in whatever is popular. To ignore what's popular, to let something less than helpful or even spiritually misleading into the culture and into the ministry of the church is the beginning of the end for the local church. I'm going to address this this afternoon, but I'll just give a little sneak peek right now. Any church that says, influencers, come on in. You just invited the devil into your midst. And you just shirked your responsibility. We know of pastors that have the influencers in their church and literally have never read their materials. Why don't you just let a rapist into your wife's bedroom? It's the same thing. And all of a sudden, instead of pulling out a little splinter, you're doing major surgery and probably looking at a church split. Let me give you one more part in this review of sentimentalism in Christianity. I want to give you a notable parallel from recent history. You've heard enough from Chad and Mark to kind of wrap your minds around what the influencers are all about. I just want to give you a parallel and then give you my reason for it. In 1990, Bill McCartney, the head football coach for the University of Colorado and his friend Dave Wardell, he, they, they launched, they launched a, an idea to rejuvenate professing Christian men with a spiritual infusion of emotion and inspiration. They formed a planning team, which in 1993 gave birth to the Promise Keepers Ministry. The entire premise was that Christian growth begins with making promises, and the, the movement was based on seven promises that men should make, and they were good promises. And, and for years, rallies and conferences were held all over the country, drawing 50, 60, and 70,000 men routinely to these events. They were filled with emotion, filled with determination, filled with men supporting men. And all, uh, it almost seemed as though a revival was happening in the lives of men around the country. And for many, perhaps, there was a, certainly a sense of spiritual renewal. But the movement had several fatal flaws. See if these sound familiar. First, they aligned themselves immediately as charismatic And among the highest leadership, they regularly claimed direct revelation from God, repeatedly. Second, they had a unity-at-all-costs philosophy that ignored sound doctrine. They looked the other way when variations of the gospel were, were presented at their conferences. They were very ecumenical in nature in that all you had to do was say, I follow Christ. They had Roman Catholic priests preaching, if you can call it that, at these conferences. There's a third fatal flaw. They said they partnered with local churches. Actually, what they did was they used local churches. They used them to fill arenas and stadiums in order to present what they called the real answer to spiritual weakness and immaturity as men gathered together using external accountability as the sole means to motivate men to obey Christ. The local church was preached as something you put up with until the next rally comes to town and you can get pumped up again. Fourth fatal flaw, they promoted easy believism, that salvation in Christ occurs if a man recites words that are fed to him or or goes to a group 
Every rally featured a guaranteed hundreds of men purporting to get saved, and certainly some did, but that's because the Holy Spirit saved them, not because of an easy believism. And fifth, this is the worst part of all, the other failure of the promise keepers. The entire premise was that spiritual maturity is based on man-powered efforts that I make. My exertion, my will, my determination. Those aren't inherently bad things, but they were devoid of one thing, sound biblical instruction on the whole counsel of God. Oh, they had preaching, but it was rah-rah type preaching of emotion and personal determination How, how could this have been different if stadiums of 50,000 and 60,000 and 70,000 men had heard the knowledge of God through the word of God exposited and explained to them instead of just a raw, raw experience? But the promise keepers saw themselves as the real answer and the church of Jesus Christ, the blessed local churches, they were just sadly not getting the job done. So promise keepers had to step in. Now I have one point. That point is that Satan has verifiable patterns. And one of them is that when a certain type of misleading or false doctrine or false practice works really well, rehash it in new form with a new name, a different leader. I want all of you to contemplate this. Listen carefully. The unbelievers Jesus confronts at the judgment in Matthew 7 They all believed they were Christians. Why? Because they had experienced something. That was the basis for their belief, and yet they're all condemned to hell. Sentiment is not a genuine faith in Christ. Sentiment is precisely the tool Satan has been using all the way back to the Garden of Eden for century after century after century to promote a slippery, enticing, feel-good substitute for actual regeneration, actual justification in Christ. You may not look at a, at a bracelet on your wrist and be assured of your salvation. You may only look to Christ to be assured of your salvation. May the truth alone be the measure of salvation in Christ. May Job be our example that the true worshiper falls down before a God who gives and a God who takes away. That God is big and I am nothing. God is everything and I am small. May the truth alone be your measure. Our Father, we thank you for the morning we've had and we ask you to work in the minds and hearts of all who are hearing right now. We ask you, Lord, to bless the time we're about to have at lunch and we thank, thank you for that and we thank you, Lord, for the afternoon coming up. Keep us sharp, Lord. Keep our minds going. I know so many are not used to this, but I, I pray, Lord, you would keep them sharp. Keep them attentive, we pray in Christ's name, amen.